0: Well, thank you for inviting me yet again to come and uh, share with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for bringing us together in this place this morning to give you our praise and worship, to encourage one another as we fellowship together, and to hear what you want to say to us. We thank you that you really want to speak to us. You love us, and you want us to hear your voice. You want to say things to us which will be helpful to us as we seek to know the Lord Jesus more fully and serve him more adequately. And so we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit for me as I speak and for all of us as we respond to what you are going to say to us. Help us to receive whatever you want to give. In Jesus' name. Now, what has happened this time is similar to what has happened to me on many previous occasions. I think I know what the Lord wants me to preach on, and then he takes it all away. And when that happens, I sort of say, well, thank you, Lord. Uh, Obviously, you didn't want me to do that, or you wouldn't have taken it away. And he gives me something else instead. And that's what happened for this Sunday morning. We're reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Have you ever wondered why, have you ever felt surprised that in the New Testament there is so much teaching about how to live the Christian life, and some of it is teaching that kind of shocks us a bit, because it's warning us against certain things that Christians shouldn't and mustn't do, and we're kind of horrified, with think, well, what Christian would ever do that? But the fact is that some Christians need a lot of encouragement, a lot of teaching, a lot of telling it how it should be done in order to develop in our Christian life. So, reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, from verse 11. To this church in Corinth, Paul writes, We have spoken freely to you, O Corinthians. Oh, it doesn't appear in the NIV, but it, it was there in the original. And when we use the word O, it's kind of intense, it's a kind of important statement, and Paul used that word O there. (laughs) We have spoken freely to you, O Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial, a name for Satan? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? We are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty." Since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts." that we would live or die with you. Now, the way the Lord has led me to look at these verses this morning is not perhaps my typical approach to things, but anyway, there are various different points that Paul is making that I have felt it right to underline. And first of all, he speaks in the first few verses that we read at the end of chapter 6, end of chapter no, 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 the middle of the chapter, from, chapter 11, from verse 11 to 13 he speaks in these verses about affection oh yes let me read them again we have spoken freely to you Corinthians and opened wide our hearts to you we are not withholding our affection from you but you are withholding your affection from us as a fair exchange I speak to my children open wide your hearts also Affection is normal to human life and relationships. Obviously, it has to be dispensed appropriately. But if we go back for a minute to Ezekiel chapter 36, we find there in the Old Testament, Ezekiel being led to write what God was saying to the Jewish people at that time. And he speaks of a new... of blessing for them and in describing the details of that blessing he says there in verse 26 I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you I will remove from your heart from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you now we know from what Paul says in this very letter we're looking at, that when we become Christians, we experience a total renewal. <coughs> he says that we are, we are totally renewed. All things have become new. Old things have passed away. And part of that removal of old things and an introduction of new things is this removing of hearts of stone and replacing them with hearts of flesh. What's the difference in the heart of stone and the heart of flesh? Well, stone is cold and dead and unresponsive. Whereas flesh, in our living experience of flesh, is living and it is vulnerable. Our flesh can be hurt, it can be damaged. And when we become Christians, It's important that God, in a sense, gives us a new heart because the old one is not fit for purpose. A heart of stone is not a suitable heart for a new man or woman in Jesus Christ. And one reason why some Christians, and particularly perhaps some preachers and teachers, are not what they could be and should be is because the replacement hasn't worked very well for them. You see, instruction is an important part of what God gives us through the preaching and teaching of His Word. But when instruction comes from a heart of stone, it is hard, it is cold, and we don't want to hear it. I have come across preachers who are brilliant preachers in terms of orthodoxy and opening up the Scriptures, But they had hearts of stone. Oh yes. There was a hard, hard streak that came through in their preaching. Oh dear. Paul wasn't like that. Paul spoke words of instruction but from a heart of flesh. That's one of the great changes that takes place when we become Christians. Now just a couple of things about affection. It is from hearts that are wide open. A heart of stone is not wide open. A heart of stone just wants to protect itself. A heart of flesh is willing to risk being hurt, being offended, being upset, because we want to bless others and they may not react in the way we would wish. So our hearts need to be wide open. Yes. But also, the affection we communicate should be communicated through words well spoken we communicate affection in different ways and words is one way and if we go back for example to Isaiah chapter 43 we find God saying what I I, well I regard this as a wonderful message that comes in Isaiah 43 first of all the Lord says I have called you by name you are mine then he says you are precious and honored in my sight and I love you He says directly to these, his Old Testament people, You are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. Well, in a sense, God cannot help loving people, because the Bible tells us he is love. And when you are love, as we cannot fully be as God is, but when you are love, the more love God pours into our hearts, the more we want to express that love through appropriate words for a start. And remember, in that farewell message to his disciples, Jesus gave them what he called a new commandment. And that commandment is so, so important. It's there in John chapter 13, verse 34. A new commandment I give you, said Jesus, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. All men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is the spiritual litmus test that Jesus has given the world whereby to test the church. Are we the real Mackay? Or are we phony? Well, Jesus says it depends whether or not you are loving. If unbelievers see a bunch of Christians who are obviously loving each other, as you folk love each other, (coughs) obviously caring for each other, as you care for each other, and that's a very, very important part of our witness, that unbelievers see a quality of love that exists among believers Which is not possible at that level among unbelievers. Because the unbelievers remember of hearts of stone, more or less, not entirely. But the believers have new hearts overflowing with love. Have you noticed that four of the New Testament letters end with an instruction which uh, is not often mentioned? Because four of the New Testament letters, including both the letters to the church at Corinth, end with an instruction. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And I think people are so scared of getting the holy kiss wrong that they say, well, we better avoid that. But it's very interesting, very interesting indeed, that the Greek word for greet is a word which means hug. Would you believe it? So in the one command, we have a command to hug each other and to kiss each other. Oh, well, well, well. So we express affection through words and we express affection through actions, actions of kindness, many different forms of kindness that we can show to people and do show to people. But you see, hugging and kissing appropriately are actually instructions that Christians receive in the word (coughs) of God. And a book I'm reading just now is telling about an incident that happened in New York a number of years ago. A professor, a Christian professor, was speaking in some big conference meeting, and after he had finished his talk, he must have been touching on something that I'm saying here this morning. He said, if any of you would like a hug, I'm available. The queue got longer and longer and longer, and that poor man was there for two hours. Yes, hugging people. And I remember an incident in Canterbury when there was an operation called Thank You Canterbury. People from abroad coming to thank people in the UK for sending the gospel to their nations. And there was a special event in the streets in Canterbury. I wasn't there, but I heard about it. And there was one guy who was, whatever was upsetting him, he was just determined to kind of spoil things. And he kept interrupting and heckling and really being a proper nuisance. And this approach was tried, and that approach was tried. They tried to get him to sit down and keep quiet. He wouldn't. There was a big American preacher there. And he went up to this guy who was making all the trouble. And he threw his arms around him and gave him the biggest hug he'd ever had. And the guy went and sat down and kept quiet. (laughs) You see, we haven't time to go into this this morning, but um, hugging in adult life is a reflection of what should happen but doesn't always happen in infancy and little children who are deprived of physical affection expressed in a hug or a kiss go into life seriously handicapped and it can affect them for the rest of their lives and they need some kind of inner healing to heal that hurt that deprivation experienced at a very vulnerable stage in childhood so we're setting the scene the atmosphere in which fellowship should operate instruction should operate prayer should operate is an atmosphere of love and you know it's very very sad but it's also very very true that so many churches the majority of churches I suspect have at one point or another split or if they haven't split totally in two or more At least a significant number of people have disappeared because of some heart. Was it the result of somebody with a hard heart, a heart of stone? You see, we're not to fellowship around doctrine. That is fatal. Where people fellowship around teaching, around doctrine. Unless you don't dot all the I's I dot, and you don't cross all the T's I cross, I don't want fellowship with you. That happens in many churches. But it's the wrong approach. We can afford to disagree on some things over doctrine. But the one thing that will bind us together and hold us together is love. So, that's part of this morning's lesson. But it's an important one. First of all, affection. And then immediately, it's very significant to me, that immediately after urging these Corinthians to open their hearts to him as he had opened his heart to them, he hits them with a command, an instruction, which many Christians resent. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. That's a hard one. It's a hard one. It really is. Some of you may know from experience how hard it is. Because, you see, it's very often true that there's a a shortage of Christian men. There are more Christian women than Christian men. And some of those Christian women fall in love with men who are not Christians and they want to marry them, share their life with them. I'm sorry, but the Bible says not a good idea. Don't do it. Be not equally, unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Now, a lot of our interaction in our lives... (coughs) is between Christians and non-Christians and that's normal and that's healthy that's fine in school, in college, in the workplace, wherever of course we interact with neighbours, Christians and non-Christians interact normally and that's healthy, that's proper but Christians argue about what this really is referring to but it seems to me clear beyond doubt that the most intimate and long-lasting relationship is that a marriage? And what can this mean if it doesn't apply to that? Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. You know, I got into trouble early in my ministry over this. Because, you see, we had some young people in the church in governed, and one of the girls fell in love with a guy who wasn't a Christian. She was a Christian, he wasn't. And she came to me and said, you know, Mr. McKeith, we want to get married. Oh. And when I say, well, sorry, the Bible says you really shouldn't be marrying a non-Christian and I'm not going to help you to break God's word. Oh, the deacons were up in arms. I was on the carpet. Sandy will lose all our young people. I said, if it happens, it happens. I'm not prepared to marry a believer to an unbeliever. I know many many Christians, many pastors, do this without a second thought and I'm not going to judge them. But I never felt free. To marry a Christian to a non-Christian. So, there's the very first bit of instruction that Paul gives. You see how practical it is. This is not instruction about some doctrine that can be filed away in the back of our minds. This is instruction about how we live our lives in human relationships. Let's see what James said about this. Because James in chapter 1 says that if we simply hear God's word and don't act upon it then we're getting it badly wrong he says get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you now these are Christians he's writing to so presumably he means that it's possible for a Christian to have any leftover moral filth and and evil in his life yes of course it is and if we don't allow the word of God to do its changing work in our hearts then we won't be saved from these things as well as we could be do not merely listen to the word he says and so deceive yourselves do what it says no i suspect a great many christians gather together every sunday hear the preaching of god's word well i know it's a bit a a horrible thing to say but it's sometimes true and they have a roast preacher for lunch, yeah? They criticize the preacher, and that's about as far as it goes. No, I'm being I'm being naughty. But the fact is that when God speaks to us, he doesn't just want to fail out away, has to file out away in the back of our minds. Much of what he says to us he wants us to put into practice. He's teaching us how to live. So Paul, James says, what you hear from the Word, do what it says. If anyone who listens to the Word but doesn't do what it says, is like a man who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But the man who looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues to do this, not forgetting what he has heard, but doing it, he will be blessed in what he does. One reason why any Christians struggle with many issues in their lives and don't get certain things sorted out that should be sorted out it is not only because they don't respond to the preaching of the word they hear on the Sunday but I have been dismayed over the years to come across a number of Christians who do not in private read the Bible regularly I mean, there are Christians in good standing in many churches. People look up to them as, great, reading Christians. And you hear a little word that you weren't meant to hear about them. Oh, he doesn't read the Bible at home. Oh, what? You see, if we do not read the Word of God and spend time with God in prayer, we will never become (coughs) the kind of Christians God intends us to be. Anyway, instruction has to happen at a practical level. But it's for a spiritual purpose, you see. It's so that we will develop spiritually in the ways that God desires and intends for us. If we go to First John, we find John saying, We proclaim to you, he's writing to Christians, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. That's the horizontal fellowship, what we have with fellow Christians. And he adds, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. That's the vertical fellowship we have with God. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light in him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth but if we walk in the light as he is in the light we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from every sin now walking in the light is another way of saying doing what God requires of us and if we do that then life is good we'll have problems we'll have difficulties we'll have hardships but Will have fellowship is not only in good order between ourselves and God and the Lord Jesus, we we'll have fellowship is also wonderfully enriching with our fellow Christians. So a spiritual purpose is behind all this, all the instruction that we sometimes are a little bit resentful about, about. I don't want to do that. Well, it's for a spiritual purpose, instruction for a spiritual purpose in the context of affection now as we turn the page a little bit we find the call to purity God has said I will live with them and walk among them and will be their God and they will be my people that's a way, taken from way back in the book of Leviticus to the Jewish people therefore come out from them and be separate saith the Lord touch no unclean thing that is taken word for word from Isaiah 52 I will receive you I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters says the Lord Almighty and Paul goes on to say let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit you see purity is not really an option for the Christian So, back to First John for a minute because there's an interesting question here many years ago And down through the years from time to time, there have been Christians who have arisen and have taught a doctrine of what is called sinless perfection. They have maintained that in this life, we can reach a point where we shall never sin again. True or untrue? Well, I suggest it's partly true. Why am I saying that? Well back to 1 John chapter 1 continuing where we left off verse 8 If we claim to be without sin we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us If we confess our sins God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins purify us from all unrighteousness If we claim we have not sinned we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives But that clearly says There is no such thing as absolute sinless perfection. It says that's utterly impossible and wrong to believe that. But, the amazing thing is, that what John says immediately after that puts a slightly different slant on it. Because John goes on to say, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But, if anybody does sin, We have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. You notice what John says here? I'm writing this to help you to avoid sin. And then he adds this. If anybody does sin. Now, if he had said, when you do sin, this is what to do about it. But he says, if. And for me, that changes everything. Why am I saying this? Because I've been around for a long time and I've heard a lot of people speaking and saying things and you pick up all those stuff along the way. I've got the impression that the average Christian has more faith that they will sin than that they won't sin. So if you face each new day and each new week saying, oh well, just one more week and I'm going to sin again. I know it'll happen. I'll have wrong thoughts. I'll say things I shouldn't say. Maybe things are not quite true. We quite lie here and there. and and I'll even do things I know should be wrong. Well, I mean, after all, I know I'm saved from my sin but I'm just me. And I'm just vulnerable. That's a very unhelpful attitude. You see, when John says, if you sin, there's an answer. As a provision. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, he is the atoning sacrifice. His blood will cleanse you from sin. All you have to do is confess it and forsake it. But because of certain things that certain preachers say and certain impressions people get, they think, well, sin is just normal in human life, is it not? In the unbeliever, yes. But we should never regard it as normal in the believer. We should never regard it as normal in the believer. So, that's an important point to stress. But, in order to attain the purity level that God desires for us, separation is essential. If you come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, is a very clear instruction. You must be willing to be separate. Separate. And again, because we're gregarious people, we love to be accepted by our family members and friends, we hate to be treated as kind of pariahs, uh, different. Oh, you can't get on with, you can't have a good conversation with Sandy, you know, he's far too holy, he's all into this and that religious stuff. Oh, really? No. But there's a separation that is appropriate and a separation that is ridiculous. And I believe one of the best helps in this whole area is to focus not on what we're to be separate from but to focus on what we're to be separate for and to how does Paul begin his letter to the Roman Christians? Well here it is Romans chapter 1 verse 1 Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart separated for the gospel of God the gospel he promised and so on and later on in that passage if he's not ashamed of the gospel he knows it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes it's much easier to be separated for something positive than to try and be separated from something negative you've probably all discovered that already and if we go over to Hebrews chapter 13 we find the same truth as it were taught in a different way. Hebrews chapter 13 here's what the writer says Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us believers then go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. This word separate interestingly the literal meaning of the word is to Border off. That's what the police do when there's there's a crime scene. They put all all that blue tape. You know, that's 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 area sectioned off. Don't try and get in here. This is bordered off, separated. Yes, but you see, the positive element is what's stressed here. It's separation to Jesus, rather than separation from wrong things. And the more we become in love with the Lord Jesus, the more we become fascinated with the Lord Jesus, the more we become intrigued with the Lord Jesus, the more we enjoy the company of Jesus, the less problem we'll have with the wrong things we should avoid. I'm sure you've heard that already and probably experienced it as much as I have. Separation is essential and it can be accomplished. Yes, there are certain things that are off limits undoubtedly for the Christian and it's not so hard to avoid them if we're focusing on the positive how good it is to have a living Lord who accepted me as I was when I came to him, messed up as I was who accepted me who threw his arms around me literally spiritually and accepted me and saved me oh yes, right, one more thing this context says something very important about family because you see Paul says in the one breath we are the temple of the living God as God has said I'll live with them and walk among them and I'll be their God and they'll be my people the church is a temple of the living God, we've been over this ground before I think within the last year in First Corinthians Paul speaks about the individual Christian being a temple of the Holy Spirit here he's talking in the second letter to Corinth about a local church together being one temple that says a lot about our fellowship, in which God lives by His Spirit. Yes, but what else does is he it, is it say here? He says the church is not only the temple of God, it's the family of God. It's the family of God. If we lived in certain parts of the world, we'd be just about as familiar with temples as with family, because the places are full of temples all over the place but the word temple is not very familiar to Scots folk living in Scotland but the word family, we all know what a family is, yes family of God there is a family, says the Bible with whom we are related the minute we become Christians, we are related to a new family we still have our old natural family parents, brothers and sisters and all that lot but we have, we're now part of a new family In fact, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says something which has been... People have puzzled over it as to quite what it means, but it seems to me it says something pretty straightforward. Paul says, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Part of the church is already in heaven, part of the church is still on earth, and God is the Father to this whole family. Yes, So, what should be going on in a family? We've touched already on the importance of appropriate affection. And affection in a family is normal and healthy and indeed necessary to a healthy family life. And Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says, Now that you have purified yourselves, there's the purity, by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, there's the family, love one another deeply from the heart. Love with another deeply from the heart is emphasizing what Jesus had taught. The family with whom we're related. But you see, the last thing we're looking at here is perhaps more important than everything else we've looked at this morning. Is the Father in whom we are united. Because Paul says here, this is what God is saying to you, I will be a father to you, and you'll be my sons and daughters, says the Lord of hosts. This goes way back to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, where Nathan the prophet was speaking to David about his son Solomon. Nathan was bringing this message from God. David had wanted to build a temple, and God said, No, I'm not letting you be able to build a temple. And Nathan says, It's your son who's going to build a temple, Solomon. And God says... I will be a father to him. (coughs) Of course, throughout the Old Testament, there are references to God as father. Father is a difficult word for some Christians. Why? Because some Christians have come from a very unhappy family background. Uh, They either had no father or they had a father who was cruel unloving, uncaring, didn't spend time with them, didn't show love to them, and the whole concept of Father is kind of anathema to some people who become Christians. So the whole idea of praying to God as Father, uh uh-uh, please don't ask me to do that. Well, the fact is that we are brought into access with the Father through our coming to know the Lord Jesus. If we go back again to Ephesians, this time chapter 2, we find Paul saying, Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, our Lord Jesus, we both, that's the Jew and the Gentile in that context, we both, whatever our background was, now that we're in Christ, through Jesus we have access to the Father by the Spirit. There are people out there in Scotland, especially in Scotland, did I say it because of the influence of Freemasonry, um, who believe that we can know God the Father but we don't want anything to do with Jesus. That's absolute rubbish as we know. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. But you see, when we do come to Jesus, who introduces us, as it were, immediately to his Father... And do know, in that same farewell message in John 14, Jesus said a strange thing perhaps to his disciples. He said, I won't leave you orphans. I'm going to come to you. I'll come to you. I won't leave you as orphans. An orphan is someone who lacks a parent. And, sadly, uh, our prisons are full of young men. Who either didn't know their father at all, don't know who their father is, was. They have lived a, a fatherless life from day one. And why are they in prison? Because they lacked the love of a father, they lacked the discipline of a father, and they ended up in a mess. It's true. All over the place. Prisons full of young men who did not have fathering. This has all changed for the Christian. Because now we have this direct access to a Father who loves us and who certainly will discipline us for our good. And Jesus taught his disciples, when you pray, say, Father. Now in my experience, I've told you already about my experience of being baptized in the Holy Spirit way back 40 years ago and more. And in my experience, when the Holy Spirit got a greater control of my life, one of the wonderful things that happened was there was a new awareness in my life of the Lord Jesus, my Redeemer and of Abba Father, my Father in Heaven oh yes, Jesus told a wonderful story which is labeled as the prodigal story, the story of the prodigal son it's not the best title for the story, is it? I don't think so the word prodigal means over-the-top generosity and this boy got his father a share of his father's estate and headed off into the father country and just blew it wistfully and sinfully and disgracefully over the top generosity of the wrong kind. But when he came back home in repentance and sorrow and desire to be reconciled to his dad, what happened? He experienced prodigal generosity from his father. His father couldn't give him enough, couldn't bless him enough when the lad came home. Personally, I prefer the title the waiting father for that story. Because you see, God waits for unbelievers to come to him for the first time. He waits for backslidden Christians to come back to him after they've been drifting. And what does he do? He gives them an amazing, incredible, fatherly welcome. A father's welcome. Romans 8. What does Paul say there about our relationship with God? Well, he says this... (laughs) He says, Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a Spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the Spirit as the Holy Spirit of sonship or adoption. And by Him, the Holy Spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. That's the intimate expression, it's like saying, Dad or Daddy. Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our Spirit that we are. God's children. There are actually people who have been led into ministries which are variously named as Father Heart Ministries or something very similar in the title. And these people have been led to exercise a ministry to people who are suffering from what is variously called an orphan spirit Which not the best title perhaps because it suggests the activity of an evil spirit which may or may not be true in that case but people with an orphan heart people who because of bad experience in human childhood feel orphans feel in their hearts orphans never having known a father's love or a father's discipline to the extent they ought to have done. And people are receiving ministry in different parts of the world. In fact, there's a group coming next month to Adelaide Place in Glasgow with one of these kind of ministries to help people who struggle in their Christian life because they, they haven't experienced human fatherhood as it should have been experienced and therefore the experience of God as Father is a real struggle and they need, a form of what we call inner healing to help them get clear of that here is the promise of God to all of us this morning I will live with them walk among them and I'll be their God you'll be my people I'll be a father to you and you'll be my sons and my daughters says the Lord Almighty let's pray Father, you alone know the true state of our individual hearts here this morning. You alone know which of us were slightly or seriously deprived in childhood of what our Father ought to have been to us. And we thank you that you can more than compensate for that. We thank you that you can heal us of orphan hearts if any of us has such a thing today. We pray Lord that by the working of your Holy Spirit you will draw near to any of us in this room right now who really is handicapped by having an orphan heart and will you just carry out that spiritual surgery that will change things for us that that orphan heart might no longer hinder us or Pray us or disturb us in any way that we might know the Father heart of God as a glorious reality every day of our life we ask it in Jesus name Amen